welcome to the Coach Steve Clark Show, where he will encourage, inspire, and equip coaches, players, and parents who will in turn motivate and help others to promote the great game of tennis, foster sportsmanship, and develop greater players and people. Thanks for joining us, and here's your host, Steve Clark. Hello, everyone. This is Steve Clark, and thanks so much for tuning into the show. Uh, the tennis community is a tight fraternity or a sorority, depending where you're coming from, and today's no exception. I have, as my guest, a former great college and pro player coached by a dear friend who I consider to be a great coach who shapes a lot of individuals. Today, I'm talking with San Diego State University All-American, top 89 ATP player, and the most loyal and unselfish player for Coach John Nelson at San Diego State, and that's Alex Waske. Uh, I know I speak for John, who was recently on my show. You might want to check that out. We, um, John and I, we have a, a many, uh, we go back about 40 years, uh, 30, 40 years, and uh, we also have a martial arts background. So we talk about that on our podcast, kind of the, the concepts, both physical and mental, that can be related to tennis. And it's just awesome to see how former players move on in life, make a name for themselves, serve their communities or become leaders in their communities. And Alex is no exception. Um, I could have a podcast a week with former players uh, to share what they're doing. And, and today, like I said, is no exception. And pardon my German, Alex, but guten Tag, wie läuft es in Deutschland? <laughs> Hi, how are you? Um, well, things are going okay here in Germany. Due to the coronavirus, basically everything shut down. So we can't really do much here. Supermarkets are open, pharmacies are open, government agencies are open. The rest is basically closed. So everybody's supposed to stay home and wait for better times to come. Yeah, well, we hope that soon. So, uh, and, and I'm sure we'll talk about some of those things. But uh, Alex, just before we started, he was talking about all the things during the downtime and all the uh, the behind the scene things he's doing at his academy. And I'm sure we can even learn what some of those are. You know, there's academies in the U.S. and around the world, and I'm sure people can learn from what he's doing. Um, uh, for you listeners, I'd like to briefly go through his journey, um, kind of from the juniors on up to where he is right now, and I think that is instructive for young players, parents, and coaches, because um, that's who I reach for every podcast. And, and then I'd like to get into our conversation, as I'm sure each of you will come away with something new or encouraging um, as we delve into Alex's uh, uh, journey as a player, collegian pro, and now as a director, coach of some of the most elite players in the world. Um, how does that sound, Alex? Yeah, sure. Go ahead. Okay, good. Well, uh, to start off with, and, uh, and you know, one of the things, uh, folks, before we get into this, I'm going to jump ahead. Um, it's amazing that, uh, in, and you can get me the details again, Alex, but Alex beat Rafa twice. I think you said 2005 on grass, and then he beat him in dubs in Barcelona on clay. So that's, uh, that's quite an accomplishment. So would you consider that your best, you. best result? Oh. Yeah, probably my best singles win. I had a couple of other um, top 10 players that I beat. I beat uh, Del Potro and Carlos Moya, for example. Um, but the, the win against Rafa was probably the, the most recognized one. Fantastic. Oh, and then you mentioned in the same year, you beat the number one doubles uh, uh team and that's Mike and Bob Bryant and Rafa so you knocked off the number one singles and number one doubles in the same year is that right 
that's true. Yeah. Yeah, it's awesome. So I, I jumped Coach, ahead. Coach that Don Nelson has been telling me many times. <laughs> that's great. So uh, what was your, uh, going back to the juniors here, um, what was your junior experience like in Germany? You know, in the U.S. or other countries, you know, there's different systems and ways they go about it. So, Mm -hmm. you know, was it, uh, did your parents play? Was it something you got out there and you were playing soccer or something else and you really liked it? Or what was your experience like? Well, um, tennis was runs in my family. So my dad was the one that brought me on the tennis court at a very young age. He, um, you know, when kids are really young, he couldn't he couldn't really do much with me. So he took the playpen and put it on the clay court. And he said, while watching the kid, I can also play tennis. I don't have to just sit around and wait. Um, so uh, I, was, I was standing there watching him play. And since I was beginning to walk, I wanted to play tennis because you always want to follow the footsteps of your father. So um, he always brought me to the tennis court. But my, my other passion was soccer. So I played these two sports for... Yeah, up until I was around 13, I would say. And then kind of things were had to split. Both sports wanted more from me. And um, I decided to go more for the tennis. But my, my father supported me in both ways. Uh, he was, I mean, he was never a soccer player, but he, he was driving me to the soccer court as well as to the tennis court. Um, and that call in the end came for me because my family always spent every day in the summer on the tennis courts. So, well. I don't know. I decided for the family, I guess. <laughs> that's great. And then, uh, yeah, it's pretty funny. You're standing there in the playpen. <laughs> I like I like that yeah. visual. <laughs> yeah, so, it, it really happened. So, yeah. Uh, all these people from my tennis club, they knew me as as a baby wearing diapers. So everybody had so many stories to tell. And eventually when I played well and they went to the Davis Cups to watch me play, they all had stories to tell. That, so that's awesome. It goes goes all the way back yeah you asked me about the system in germany so yeah the, the system in germany is like this that when you're around i would say nine ish um the district of the city uh, that you're in they're scouting and they're like making a kind of a team four to six players by from every year and um there there's always a coach that scouts and and looks for the best talent so if you're qualifying for that you get once a week practice for free um, and um, usually the the clubs also have programs where they um, have, um, have where they have practices for the better kids. So my club already um, did a lot for me, and they they really supported me. And um, I think I was playing twice or three times a week in my club team. And then uh, the district scouted me, and they said that I'm not talented. So. I was not part of the district team because I was not good enough for the city of Frankfurt. Um, so that was my start. I was 10. Um, uh, I was playing tennis, loving it. But ob- obviously I was bumped because uh, uh, they felt that I wasn't good. And then I won the district championships, I think, four or five times in a row. And then they kind of offered for me to come <laughs> back to their team. But hmm. I think I was too proud for that. So yeah. I told them that I'm not talented enough for, for their squad. And then when I was 14, uh, the state of uh, Hessen, which which I live in, um, that's the next step then. So mm-hmm. the state does basically the same thing. They pick their best four to six players from every year. And um, I was 14 and they looked at me and they also felt that I'm not talented. So they didn't pick me. Um, and then I just kept on playing in my club and my club supported me. Um uh, had a had a very good coach. Gideon Hip was his name, and he was working with me since I was young. 
and then turning 18, um, back then we had to go to the army. Um, and I applied for the sports department. And again, they told me I wasn't talented enough for that. So I didn't make that team. And when I was um, finishing school, then I had to go to the army for for one year. I was a medic. So I, I at least learned first aid and, and things like this for a year. And I played roughly or maybe twice a month. I played tennis during that year. Um, and when I was 19, I had no idea what to do. And professional tennis was nowhere near in reach. So my, as my father is a banker, he told me, if you don't know what to do, if you don't know what to study, maybe it's better for you if you if you do an apprenticeship. Uh, um, so the apprenticeship is you learn how to do a job. Um, it's it's half half time to uh, in school, and the other half is you go through every single department of the the company that you're working at. So um, I, because he said if you're studying something and you don't want to do it anymore after one and a half years, you're dropping out and you have nothing to sell for. An apprenticeship is only two years, so I did that, and. Yeah, I was doing banking and I wasn't happy and I was asking my my teacher if I could have some Fridays off to play some tournaments and he always asked me, you want to be a tennis professional or a banker? And after he asked me for the third time, I think I I was close to saying, you know what, I really prefer playing tennis over banking. So, <laughs> um, I was quite frustrated that yeah. I didn't play tennis enough and um, but I also didn't want to, want to stop my educational part so at the end, um, I was one of the first ones that uh, wanted to go to the to the to the United States to go to college. And um, back then, we had no internet, so it was really difficult. So uh, there was a the place here in Frankfurt. It was called the America House. I went there, and there were huge books, and I I found your name in that, and John Nelson's name, and a couple of others, um, because I eventually I did it like the um, like Eddie Murphy did in his. Uh, movie i just looked at the map and i pointed <laughs> at uh, california hollywood california. <laughs> yeah so i had no idea i didn't know one person in, in america so i said i'm going to california so i just looked at all these colleges and sent letters and faxes and whatever was was happening back then my father booked me a flight and a rental car and there i was i was flying to la and then i drove from from city to city and knocked on doors and was hoping uh, that someone liked me and uh, made an offer. And um, that's how I met John Nelson at the end. Mm. That uh, really impressed me on how he saw things. And um, uh, he saw a lot more in me. I mean, we had this, this, this first conversation that we had, and I, I thought that I didn't play well, and I thought that he's not going to offer anything. And he said that he sees big potential in me. And... He said that he he sees a top hundred player in me, and then I said, "Well, um, I'm ranked 199 in the German men's rankings. I also think I can make top hundred." And then he said, "No, no, no, no. I'm talking about the world rankings." And I said, "Please, coach, don't make fun of me. <laughs> I'm, 100, I'm barely top 200 in my own country. How can I make top hundred in the world? I mean, there is no chance." And he said, you have no clue on how good you are. So things came together. He offered me a full scholarship, and I went to San Diego State, and we started working. And um, back then, I was far away from thinking of professional tennis, and I, had, I didn't have the confidence that, that 
I was good enough to do that. And I was also lacking strokes. Uh, my game was lacking a lot of things. So John Nelson was really into uh, putting a player together and also Larry Willens, who has been with a, um, with San Diego State for, for basically forever. He also worked a lot with me. So these two guys really boosted my, my game. And um, yeah, after two years of college, I was already... I was already ranked 270 in the world, and I decided to finish my my last semester, my last year of school. Um, and after that, I turned pro. So when I eventually made top 100, um, Coach Nelson was the first one calling me and said, "I'm checking the rankings. There's a young German guy that just broke into top 100. You, what do you want to tell me, <laughs> and I said, Coach? You're the you're the smartest, uh, uh, best-looking, whatever you want. You, you, you choose. You, you win, and I'm happy. That you win. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm really thankful for for the time in the U.S. I would have never ever turned professional without the help of John and Larry. There's there's no doubt about it. I would have ended up playing somewhere in the German leagues, loving tennis, uh, enjoying, it, and probably doing something for for a living that I'm not loving nearly as much as what I'm doing right now. So I'm I'm very grateful to the things that he taught me. And you mentioned martial arts. I mean I was on the mat with him once or twice a week and he was teaching me jujitsu. So Yeah. He's he's been it's not only about tennis. It's not only about forehand and John Nelson and 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 Barry Willens they they taught me to become a, a better person. They really worked on my patience and and the way to, how to treat people and to, to be respectful and uh, thankful for things and um, the bigger picture in life. So I, yeah, I'm very thankful that I've met them. And I think some, there was something weird, you know, we, we met in uh, um, Irvine back then and uh, you also made a good impression to me, but there was something that you couldn't beat. And I have never, ever felt that way again. And that was uh, San Diego State was my last visit, so that was the last school I was I was going to, and I drove on campus and I had never been there before. I drove over a construction site where <laughs> they were building Cox Room. <laughs> yeah, they're always building there. I remember, yeah. yeah, and and I remember like it was yesterday. So I was parking just anywhere, and I ended up being very close to the tennis courts. Um, and when I got out of my car, um, I looked up, I saw the blue sky. And I had this huge feeling in my gut. This is this is where you have to go. Oh wow! This yeah, is, uh, yeah, this I can't. Really, com- really important. Um, so I had this, um, I had this gut feeling that this is this is my new home. Wow! So that's, I had never ever had a, a strong feeling like that. And it's not it's not like they had the best program or they had the best players or it was just purely gut feeling and i followed that gut feeling that's why i was so nervous that i maybe didn't play well enough um yeah and that he might not take me because i i i had that feeling that i have to go there there's no doubt so well and i did so and I, well yeah, you know I got lucky. this is why i do the podcast i could stop here right now alex i could stop here <laughs> right now and there would be, I guarantee you, there are going to be thousands of young kids. If they listen to this podcast, you're going to speak to every one of them. Because that's a story for a lot of kids. I know some personally that that is exactly how they thought. They were told this, or they told themselves this. You know, they said, hey, 
you know, because like here in the in the United States, see, that's one thing that's different in Europe. And I knew that when I asked the question about the system is there's a more grassroots ability to progress in Germany and, and Europe. And there's tournaments all over the place. And so, for example, you know, your club, you know, maybe the district or the state didn't pick you up, but the club did. And they helped you out. And and and. The club and did. And and not just, you know, just, hey, here's some balls to hit with another person. It's they actually, you know, sponsored you. They actually pushed you. They actually encouraged you, that sort of thing. And yeah. there's yeah. kids here that don't have that per se. Um, and then, you know, it's kind of like you got to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You got to have the money. You got to travel. Anyway, the point being is you had a lot of these, almost the Rocky syndrome. You know, it's like, you know, people telling you can't, you can't, you can't. And you just kept yeah. pushing. And yeah. then all of a sudden, you know, you pop out the other end. And, and, and this is an important. Actually, I didn't. I didn't keep, I actually, I didn't keep pushing. I gave up. Oh. There was, there was zero of a, of a professional athlete in me. There was somebody that liked to win and compete. Right. And my coach saw that. But there's no way if you had given me, I don't know, 50,000 euros and say, go play when you're 18. No. So I'm you didn't have the vision so, per se. You didn't, you weren't thinking, Hey, I can do this. No. You, you'd, yeah. So that's even no. more important that a guy that is in that position actually ended up where you are. That's huge. Yes. But, but this is due to coaching and that's yeah. where, where, where coaching and mentors also comes in because these guys, Larry and, and, and John, they're, they weren't there for the tennis player only. They were there for a person. They helped me in, in other parts of my life. And uh, um, they did much more than just teach me forehands and backhands and tactics. Um, they, they, they did much more for me. So um, this is why it was, for example, so important for me when I played one Davis Cup singles match only. And Larry Willens flew in all the way from the States to watch me play that match. So mm-hmm. I'm so happy and so grateful that he came and, and watched it. And John Nelson, because he was the start of my professional career, I invited him um, for my last Grand Slam when I played 2012. And I played for the last time at the U.S. Open. So he came with his wife, and he watched me play, being a 37-year-old uh, old player, you know. And, <laughs> and he had that young kid from Germany once uh, in his hands, and he saw all the things that he um worked on with me and they were basically not there back then back then right. i didn't have a volley game and a couple of years later there was no question that i had the best volley in germany there was no question that if i played with tommy haas in davis cup and we're both at the net you better not go for my side you go for tommy <laughs> so but that's that's all that's all john nelson right there and he yeah. was a pain in the butt i mean when it was raining and you know it wasn't raining a lot in san diego we we had to go to the indoor facility, and the indoor facility was a volleyball court. So he, he pulled down the nets, and volleyball nets are huge. You know, the ball just goes through, and he made us volley for one and a half hours. And I was complaining and complaining <laughs> and whining and telling him that he's an idiot and that he has no clue. And it's completely useless to practice on this wooden surface, which is super fast. And mm-hmm. you know what? He was right. He was right all the way. And these volley sessions and drills, I'm doing with my with my kids now and they're complaining as much as I'm complaining or I was complaining and I'm doing the one I had to go through this too but at the end of the day I can volley now so yeah a lot of things yeah. stuck with me that they taught me yeah if, I, if, if, if all my college most of my college guys I remember uh, when I took over one team uh, uh, 
after my UC Irvine days, uh, you know, we spent a lot of time in the volley and the kids were saying, why are we spending so much time in the volleys? And, you know, I mean, I didn't tell them this. I go, well, it's because you can't volley. I mean, it's like you have to be able to <laughs> you have to be able to do it. And we'd spend I mean, their arms would be sore. And it's like, look, guys, you, you the only time you can, yeah. you know, and when I grew up in college, the same thing. I was uh, kind of like same thing with John. We had to go. There is no rain in northern Cal. There was no indoor. So you go into uh, hardwood volleyball and you, we'd actually serve in volley and on hardwood. And it was just yeah. it was it was hysterical. Yeah. So. Um, yeah. yeah, so you've mentioned so many things there that are important. And um, one of the things that uh, I, I pulled from that is, you know, you even had to take time off, uh, you know, there, because of the military and, and even work. I mean, you didn't get a lot of, you know, th- th- a lot of people could say, hey, you know, well, I didn't get to do this. I didn't get to do this, et cetera, et cetera. And, and even though you admitted, you said you'd kind of just given up. It, 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 it just goes to the fact that you absolutely don't have to. It's not absolutely necessary to have to have everybody support, everybody saying you're great, uh, to have all the time on court, et cetera. If you get the right situation and, and you know, people, you know, behind you, you know, stuff can happen. I think that it's, it's not the right thing if you have everything just handed to you on a plate. Um, when it comes down to it, in tough situations, uh, where do you where do you take your motivation from? You need a handful of people that believe in you, 100%. You yeah. can't be alone against the world. But it's it's motivation. If if you're in rainy Germany and it's cold in November, and you're supposed to run the hill up and down 20 times, you can just imagine the people that told you for your for your whole life, you're not good enough. You're you, you better go home. Come on, stop playing tennis. You're not. You suck. Right. And then you can look and you can imagine their faces in front of you and say, you know what, I'm going to run this thing 25 times Yeah. because I'm going to show you that I can do things that you could never even think of. But on the other hand, you also need people that I believe in you, that believe in you. And I had one big match in college. Um, Robert Kendrick was one of the best college players at the time. He was playing for Pepperdine and mm-hmm. I played him in my, in my last year of college. And, um, it was one of those days where everything came together. Um, me and my coaches agree that it's probably three to four days in the year that you have that where everything is there. You can just you, you can ask me, you want to hit the outside or the inside of the line? And that was one of those days, and I just killed him three and two at Pepperdine. And I was playing so good that I felt if I can play this kind of quality, then I'm, I'm probably good enough to, to, to play professional. So the next day I was standing next to next to Larry and John and I told them that I believe. And that was the, the, the change of our mm. working relationship because before they kind of they, they had to push me a bit to do more. They had to they had to, you know, right. um motivate me to practice here and there. I wasn't used to hitting so much as you know, so five times a week was a lot for me. But when I told them that I had started a complete different belief in me then it was more of more guiding me because then it was clear we're going to work much harder than before and um do you remember what do necessary. you remember what day that was you said it was the day after the match against kendrick yes so you can actually go back I in time back. and you can pick the actual date yes. that you said i believe that yes yes that's cool and then i started i, I started working much harder yeah. Um, I, I did many more workouts in the mornings. I was working on every weekend, uh, and I just believed in in my coaches uh, bringing me uh, further along the way. And basically, that that's, that last season of mine, 
on record, I have one loss uh, where I sprained my ankle in the first set and I had to retire, and that was it. I I didn't lose a match that whole season. So, yeah. um, and we we made Sweet 16 that year. That's it. Doesn't matter if if I if I can name Bob and Mike Bryan or or um, Rafa Nadal and and all these guys uh, making Sweet 16. It's one of the biggest successes of my life, and it it's it was such a big feeling because that was the reason why I came to San Diego. Mm-hmm. Um, when I talked to John Nelson um, right in the beginning of our working relationship, I told him that my goal is to look into his eyes when he books flights for this uh, Sweet 16, which I I had no idea what Sweet 16 was. I mean, <laughs> coming from Germany, NCAAs, okay, cool. I had no idea if it's important. I always had to ask my coach, is right. this tournament <laughs> is important this... <laughs> or not? Exactly. Yeah. Is this an important tournament? <laughs> so, yes. Yeah. So, I told him if this is important, then let's. Let, that's it. And uh, when we beat Pepperdine, um, I was like a little child running next to his father. I was like, "Coach, I want to see it." Take out the phone, call the athletic director, tell him book the flights for for Athens. So, yeah, that that feels as big in my heart. Then we won the World Team Cup. We were World Team Champions uh, in 2005 with Germany. We beat. Argentina in the final. They had three top ten players back then with Guillermo Correa, Gaston Gaudio, and Vili Canas. But I can, um, in my heart, this is even. You know, both both things are as important to me. Yeah, that's it's the team aspect. That's awesome. You know, it's it's. Uh... You know, you have. I, I plan these podcasts. I go. I I do a lot of you know some background stuff, and I have a lot of questions. But the thing is, is uh, you're touching on so many of the things we want to talk about. So that's, uh, that's awesome. It's, uh, it just shows that, uh, the things that I see, read, hear, etc., uh, really are deeply ingrained and that's awesome to hear. Let me, I got a quick question. So now you graduated with sure. a degree in business, right? No, I didn't graduate. I had ah. probably two semesters left, but I was 25 years old. Yeah. My, my uh, my scholarship ran out and my coach told me that I could come back and finish school and he would help me out. And I said, that's great just to, you know, to have an insurance like this, but I needed to play. I couldn't finish the degree and uh, then wait and then be 27 or 27 and a half right. and then start playing. So, right, right. And yeah, I played and it took me a year to, to break top 100. So Have you ever thought of going back online? <laughs> um, no. <laughs> uh, I... I I would I wouldn't say no. Back right. then there was no online courses. Right, so, right, right. Um, and and now, um, I mean, I have my own company now. <laughs> I have sixteen employees. No, here. I got um, you. <laughs> um, I've, I've, I'm not going to apply somewhere, and they're not going to take me because I have a college degree. Right. Um. So exactly. It, it, yeah. But I'm telling you that I still have dreams that I go back to school and I finish the degree. So I, I yeah. still have that somewhere in my head. It's, it's kind of unfinished business, but <laughs> um, I'm still, I wouldn't trade the, the degree for, for the other part. That, yeah, that no, I no, no. I, I was just, uh, yeah. Um, so, you know, in all those, uh, you know, the highlights from college that you express and the tour, etc., cetera, um, you are now you know, the director of this academy, and I want to kind of segue into that because you've answered a ton of questions I had about the other stuff, is now as the, as the I, I got one question, though, to lead this off. As the director of Tennis mm-hmm. University, it's in Offenbach, Germany, right? Yes, it's very and, close to Frankfurt. Yeah, um, 
And do you have one in India as well? I, I noticed there was a... Yes, we oh, okay. have a second one. We started about a year ago now. Oh, okay. India. I did this in, in Frankfurt now for 10 years, and last year we started one in India. Okay. Um, if you took things from, you know, your college and all the influences there, um, you know, and on the tour, what would be things that drive your, you might say, your your philosophy or, you know, how you... Uh, you might say your purpose, your vision, your values, those type. What what from those experiences would you say are key that drive you in your academy? The, the, the ones that I learned in college or during my college time? Uh, or just from college to the pros, because before college you were kind of floundering. And, and after your college experience and then the pros, what are those lessons, those people that have influenced you, like John and other people, uh, and the lessons yeah. you've learned, how, how did those shape you as a leader now in your academy, those kind of things you try to emphasize? Well, um, obviously, it's, it's, it's not just college. It's, it's the people that you meet. It's, yes. It can be a complete different experience if you have a coach that is not interested and doesn't teach you much uh, right. compared to the two coaches that I had that were really uh, drilling me in, in, in so many ways. So a lot of the drills that they taught me I'm still using, but they always treated the person first and they had a, a lot of time for for the person and they also led by example. So um, I can tell you that, uh, for example, John Nelson, um, he was always talking about his boosters and he was always talking about these kind of sponsors that we're having. So, mm -hmm. you know, I, I always thought, okay, um, he has boosters. And, and then after two years, I asked him, and I said, uh, you know, where are they? They they never come to our matches. <laughs> and coach coach was always teaching lessons somewhere after our practices and stuff. And then I found out that these boosters were people that took lessons from him. But the money that they paid for these lessons, this money always went to in, into our program. He never took a dollar out of that. And that impressed me so much that this guy was spending so much time on the court, but just for us, never for himself. And um, this going overboard, this this you know giving more than than being being asked for, this I think stuck with me for my whole life. So um, I think that that perspective really changed me. That's uh, that's exactly what I was uh, curious about. Not that particular uh, aspect, but just uh, how those things. Yeah, it's not the drills. It's not the on court stuff so much. It's the the influence of people. What would you say is your philosophy? Well, on court also. Yeah. Coach, coach coach gave me gave me a lot of drills. You know, we have this. Uh, John Nelson was always uh, a lot focused on my serve because he felt that this is my that one shot that stands out that mm -hmm. I can maybe do better than a lot of other people. So he had this seven drill <laughs> and um, the seven drill, you have to hit seven first serves full power into the same corner. And if you miss, you go back to zero. So for two years, you have this whining, complaining German kid that tells you that's not possible. You know, it's, uh, nobody can do this and this is bullshit and nobody does that and blah, 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 blah. But at the end, I kept doing it and doing it and doing it. It really refined my serve. And I got so accurate that um, I was able to do this drill in practice. I could do all the corners uh, in a row 
um, uh, my record actually now is up to 26 first serves in the same corner. So, and that led, um, that brought my game to a complete different level because even though from the baseline I was probably not good enough to hit with most players that were top 100, but my serve was at times um, untouchable. So I had, I have one match where I served 45 aces in the best of three. Um, I still have the scorecard of that match and against most of these good players, I needed a lot of three points. Otherwise, playing every rally, um, I wasn't consistent enough. And um, so this drill, I kept doing it over and over and over. And this, this stayed for my whole life. And uh, another part when it came to serving, now I show you the combination with Larry Willens. Larry used to teach Rod Labor, right, uh, for many years. So he was uh, traveling a bit with me because he was a bit more free. John still had his college coaching position, so he didn't have any time. And Larry took his time, and he was he was driving uh, and traveling with me over two years to a lot of tournaments. And he worked with me on visualization on serves, and he always told me that important points that he wanted me to visualize my service motion and to even in 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 my head to see my serve even bigger than it is. So instead of jumping. Uh, uh, a little bit. I was like Superman, almost flying in the air, and uh, I was I was seeing how I was hitting the inside line full power with 300 kilometers an hour. So I was overdoing things in my head. But this obviously costs a lot of energy. This visualization stuff, it's very useful when it counts. So and he's got, he he charted me for these two years, and with all the matches where he charted me um, on break points down. I had 91.91% uh, first serves on breakpoint down. So, um, and I visualized before every single breakpoint down. So, um, that's where you can see that both of these coaches really helped me into the same direction. So, is it safe to say then, uh, as in an academy, this is one of the things I want to uh, kind of talk about a little bit now is. Um, for example, you have as a mantra for your academy, intensity is a belief. Um, and then you have your certain... This is from Larry Willens, by the way. Right. Larry and... Willens gave, told me that all the time. So it's also, it's not for me, it's from him. Right. So that, so these things here, when you talk about, uh, you know, you have your, on your website, you have your values um, and you have your, you know, how we work professionally, family, intense and purposeful and these things. So are these things, yeah. for example, let me ask you a question uh, more practically. So you talk about the visualization. That's one of the questions I wanted to ask you because I know there's a lot of mental components and the things you, uh, you know, learned over those years. Um, how do you, uh -huh. what would be a practical application, like, um, for if the mental game is that important, how do you, uh, as an academy director, coaching all these players, either on the pros or upcoming juniors, what do you do daily or weekly that would um, – not just the drills, but uh, or the fitness and those things, because those seem to be pretty run of the mill. You know, a lot of places do that. But what do you, the intensity, the focus, the mental side of the game? What would you practically do to make sure that that component is being expected or realized every day? Uh, Does that I make would sense? Say the number one, uh, yes. The the most important thing would be communication. So if you don't talk to your players, if you don't communicate with them, you don't know what they're feeling. And if you don't see them play matches, you don't see where they're failing. So 
time is very important. And then every individual is different. Why are they lacking things? So some people need to get in higher intensities in practice. They have to repeat more things. Some others have to work on their body language. A lot of them have to work on the way they talk to themselves. So my head coach, Bjorn Simon, he, he once went to a player and said, if you would say the thing, if I would say the things to you, like the, the same things that you're saying to yourself now in your head, would you still want to work with me? And he said, hell no. And he said, why are you talking to yourself like that then? Don't be so disrespectful to yourself. So we have to find, uh, um, I mean, mental training is, is, is an easy easy wording. We have a mental coach. Yes, he meets with the players, but it's not, there's no clear routine, routine in that. It's, it's building a personality and building a character. And a stronger character, a, a, a person that fails and gets up on their, on their feet again and tries it again will, in my opinion, succeed with whatever they do in life as long as they don't, um, you know, wave and, and say, I'm out, I don't want to do this anymore. So we have to, we have to, it's, it's very individual to do that. Um, the same thing with a physical part. Um, just to have a fit, just having a fitness coach doesn't, it doesn't make you that much better. You need right. to communicate with a fitness coach. Why do you want to do what? And in, in fitness, you have to have these, these workouts that are brutal. Uh, I can name you uh, a preseason that I did with Jürgen Melzer together and my fitness coach, Christian Rauscher and me, we, we, we had designed that we have these two days when we really waste him. Like we, I, I put down the garbage, the trash can and I said, until you puke, we're going to go now. And it was, it was, it's not in the books anywhere. It, it's absolutely, when it comes to science, it would be, everybody would say, this is bullshit. You're going to risk an injury. Um, this is too much. Uh, he needs too long to recover from that. Where's the benefit? I can tell you the benefit. We went to the Australian Open and it was the fifth set. He was playing Roberta Bautista Agut in, in, in the brutal heat in, in Australia. And it was the fifth set and he looked outside. It was 2-1 and he was done. He was so tired and he looked outside and before he could say that he's too tired to keep going i stood up and i told him that the guy on the other side he didn't do this preseason he didn't do these tough drills he didn't have this day when he ran a million times left and right and left and right and left and right and i made him believe that he had worked so hard that he can surrender and luckily two minutes later on the other side roberto starts cramping and my player feels like a fresh air, you know. Right, exactly. He feels like, oh, he's cramping. I can, I can do it. He was very, very close to cramping too, and he probably did, but he wouldn't show it anymore. Right. He knew that the other guy is struggling so much right now, and um, I think that this exactly showed how fitness training could make you mentally so strong that you survive a match like this because you deeply believe that you worked so hard that you. I'm going to earn it now and you're going to deserve it now. So I think that the mental part comes in from all different angles. And we have so many influences, so many people that will tell you that you're not good enough. So much pressure coming these days from a lot of the parents um, that have no idea on how much useless pressure they put on their kids. I mean, I have some kids that I feel they're close to drowning when they start, when they step on the court, and and they, it feels like they're playing for their lives because they're so scared to to inform their parents that they lost. Mm -hmm. uh, 
sometimes it's, this is just way too much. It's just a junior tennis match. So, um, yeah, we kind of have to put it into perspective again. I uh, couldn't agree with you more. You know, it's it like the with even the guys when I coach uh, collegiately um, is why do you have to train so hard? Why do you have to do? Because your training should always be harder than a match. And then, and bottom line is, when you get out there, you're going to feel like I deserve to win because I put in the hard yards. I, if I've worked hard, if I know I've worked harder, I mean that's how I had to compete in college. I had to work hard. You know, people didn't lift weights in college. I did just because I liked it, but. Uh, there was no weightlifting program back there, but I'd just kind of work out with mm. all the football guys and a lot of strength trainers and I, or the guys into powerlifting. And, and it's just you, when you're stronger than the other guy and you know it, it's like I don't care if this goes three sets and I don't care if it's 100 degrees out. I know I'm fitter than you are. So that helps your mental yeah. game. That's what you're saying. And then you're saying not only that, it's the other, all the other aspects. So when you're saying it's not one thing per se, meant like a mental program uh, because all these other things shape it, um, I, I see where you're coming from. I do have a question, though. Let's say, for example, you have a mental coach there. Is there a program he he may be run? Like, I know some schools uh, even would have, like, they'd sit the whole team down, so it's not an individual thing, and they might have them do some visualization before a match or some relaxation techniques. Um, is there anything that the your mental coach does uh, as a group each day with people or before matches? Is there a no, routine? Not, not each. Okay. Not each day, no. The routines are um, are usually things that you include in your in your warm ups, in your preparation for the matches, and this is uh, how you mentally get set for these matches too. Um, I can I can tell you a really interesting story from Roger Federer because um, I asked him how he, you know, I always had a problem being the super favorite, like. I, was, I would play terrible when I was one-seated at a challenger, mm-hmm. and I would be totally relaxed playing a top-ten player in the world because, you know, if I lose, right. I mean, yeah. You have nothing to lose. Big yeah. deal. <laughs> but um, uh, playing against someone where you have to win, I always struggled with. So I was standing at the sandwich place in Melbourne next to Roger, and I asked him if he has a minute, and he said, sure. And, I mean, the guy is so nice. It's unbelievable. So <laughs> you don't need a camera for him to turn on the nice guy. He's yeah. the nice guy. Yeah. So... And I asked him this exact question, and he, he said to me, well, he needs that feeling to be the favorite. And I said, okay, yeah, I understand. You've been there for a long time. And um, and I said, yeah, but I, all, I always feel like something's holding me back. Like I'm, I cannot really give more than 80% and stuff like this. And he said he goes on the court, and this is the interesting thing now, with the same feeling every single time he plays. And I said, I don't believe that. I mean... One day you're happy, one day you're sad, one day you're aggressive, another day you're a bit tired. And you said, I know how it feels like when I play well, and I go into that feeling. Okay. And I said, how do you get into that feeling? He said, through my routines. I always hit two and a half hours before the match, and then I shower, and then I eat, and then I go get my tapes done, and to my rackets and everything and that progress that whole part puts me into that mindset and then basically Roger is an actor because actors can can do the same thing they go into feelings and they they can cry in front of the camera and you think or they pretend their father just died and they're just going into that emotion and Roger goes into this light fast um, very effective feeling and 
and that's that's how he plays. So I tried the same thing. It didn't work at all. <laughs> like I, I, no chance. But you know what helped me? I pretended to be Roger, and I I know that I don't look anything like him, but it made me move better. It made me move a bit lighter, a bit more elegant, a bit. I I was swinging a bit more clean. I wasn't like throwing my hip and trying everything with power. I would try to do it with a bit more finesse. And mm-hmm. for me, that helped because I was playing a bit more clean. And obviously, Roger plays, I mean, so clean. So um, I, I thought that was really interesting on a mental part on how he how he approaches matches, that he always mm. wants to have that same feeling. And we all know how it feels like when you're in the zone. Right. We also know how it feels like when we're not. But um, does anybody try this to to reproduce this feeling. I don't think a lot of people try this. Maybe that's why he's, you know, considered the greatest of all time. He can do it and a lot of people can't. That's interesting. Yeah. So he finds his happy yeah. place even before he gets on the court. He knows where to find it. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Um a couple things about the juniors here is uh what advice would you give the juniors right now, maybe aspiring to play college and perhaps eventual, uh, eventually uh, professional tennis? Uh, you mentioned, um, like, I don't know, and I don't know what percentage of your academy or uh, juniors wanting to play college. Maybe they're all just focused on pros. I don't know. But uh, what's your advice to people listening that either want to go to maybe college and or beyond? Well, um I wouldn't limit myself too early. And I mean, when you're 14, there's no, it doesn't make any sense to say I want to go to college or, right. um, so just aim for the, for the best possible player that you could be. And then you end up becoming older and priorities shift. And then we see when you're 18, if you want to play pro or not, can you afford it or not? Can you go to college or not? I mean, there's, um, mm. I think there's, there's a lot of things down the line. So you should really, look for your most important things in life. And when you're 12, 13, 14, there should be family and school. And then number three can be, can be tennis and you have to give it your best effort. So, um, and you need people around you that show you, um, how it's done. And then also you need to be somewhere around professionals. You need to watch good players practice sit your kids down when there's two guys, even, I don't know, when they're ranked three, four, five hundred in the world, and the kids should watch a whole entire workout and not sit there and ask for an autograph, not sit there and ask for a picture or ask if they could hit with a guy for two minutes. They should actually look at how are they practicing. They should actually maybe try to sneak into the gym and see what they're doing there and look at their routines and look at how much work they're actually putting in, that they really learn from these professionals um and not only watch the highlights and the best five shots of indian world this is not what gets you better um but sadly this is what they all watch all these short videos all these hmm. compilations of the best uh, uh between the leg shots i mean when you're on my court and you're playing a ball between your legs which is not which you don't have to you have to make 20 jumps because <laughs> why why are you waiting for the ball and slow everything down to play it between the legs. You, you, Run around it and crack, and crack the forehand. Every player that I've coached is right now going, dang it, coach is right. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, hate, I hated the tweeners, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. That's yeah. great. So, I mean, there is a couple of shots where you can't play it any other way. Okay. Right. But don't look for it. Right. I mean, it, it doesn't put you in a better position. So, um, but this is what counts today. You, some of the kids, they don't want to be boring. They want to be entertaining. Um, they don't want to be David Ferrer and, and, and these kind of players that just play great, but not entertaining. So, um, some of them don't want to win the trophy. They want to, they want to uh, have more clicks on YouTube. <laughs> yeah. The question I uh, asked players, I remember uh, one particular uh, uh, group of players, I had to kind of really find out what made them tick. I I just uh, taken over the team and I asked them a question. I said, look, I said, uh, and I, I was doing some consulting for another team. And so I asked the players the same thing. I said, look, what's more important for you to play well or look good and lose or to play ugly and win. And it was amazing how many people say, well, I'd rather play well and lose. I mean, at least I feel good about that. And I was like, that's pretty revealing. You know, it's the idea that you need to do whatever it takes to win, you know. Um, and another question I have, and it's kind of a, you know, obviously there's a, a scale on this, but I would say, uh, do you hate to lose or do you love to win? Which, which drives you more? And, uh, you know, there can be, you know, this sliding scale but uh, I'm not going to answer the question. It's uh, you know for some other time for people to think about. But uh, you know I'll, I'll say this: nobody generally in a match down break point, set point is running for a ball, thinking a I hope I look good. B uh, boy, it sure is fun running down balls. Um, it, <laughs> no, it's I'm I'm going to die on this court before I lose this point. You know. And those type of things, uh, you know, like you say, they kind of go hand in hand with the idea of we're in a culture where it's quick clicks. That, hey, that's a great shot, or I love the way that looks, et cetera, et cetera, as opposed to doing yeah. the hard yards. What what do you actually – you know, it's even with uh, Michael Jordan and all these greats in other sports. People see the end result. They don't see the – and they say, well, he's so talented. They don't see the hard yards. People don't understand that about Fed, and that's what you're talking about. Two and a half hours before he plays a match. You know, they don't understand. These guys actually work really hard, <laughs> you know, and they're talented, but they they have to work hard to bring that talent out. And that's why I talk about what's called deliberate practice or grit on other podcasts and on my blogs. Um, you're hitting the nail on the head. It's that hard work, and you're seeing that. So you're suggesting the juniors spend more time watching and not necessarily, um, you know, just uh, what do we call bits and bites of uh, great plays. Yeah, um, the, the question is, what are they going to pick up? I mean, um, I, I, I take my kids um, at tournaments and I, I make them watch matches. I usually make them watch the guy that beat them the day before and I make them analyze his, his, his whole match. And what are you looking for? And I want to see if you can tell me, oh, he's serving 57% wide on Deuce. I, I didn't know that. What, what's their well, response when you when you quote when you make them quote unquote make them do that? What's their usual response? Do they like that or they get used to it? No, they hate it. <laughs> uh, first of all, they, they barely have the attention span to look at a match for one and a half hours. They right. can't. Yeah. Because they always want to play around on their phone. phone. And when I told them that they have to turn their phones off during that time, um, that's a disaster for them. They they they, they feel like they have no idea how to how to do that. So. Um, I need them to stop being fans or I don't want them to get entertained when they watch tennis. I want mm. them to dig deep. I want them to learn something. I want to, 
I want them to watch the final of a Grand Slam, not uh, uh, for entertainment. I want them to, to look different. I want them to be in a stadium of thousands of people and they have to see a different match than all the other people. Because they're not going to order a Coke and a, and a box of popcorn. They should sit there with a, with a pen and a piece of paper and analyze these guys because they might become their opponents in the future. And they should learn how do I, during a match, read my opponent? How do I take these things out? Or if I cannot bring my coach for the next tournament, how can I, if I have a, a set to watch for, for my next match, how can I see something that I can use against him? Where is he good at? What patterns does he repeat all the time? Can I read anything? Mm-hmm. Instead of just looking, oh, he has a good forehand. Right. Great. Uh, or, I don't know, he, he's got a big serve, but this and this is not so good. Well, then how do you get there? Because you also need to f- give me a strategy on how you make this guy play his, his bad shot. I mean, there's a million guys out there with a big serve and a big forehand, and everybody knows their backhand sucks. So... It's not that easy to just put every every single ball to the backhand because this guy is usually running around really quickly. So if you just put the ball to the backhand, the guy will hit forehand out of the backhand corner all day. So that's 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 too simple. So I need I need the kids to to just start thinking and to analyze and to spend their time at least some part of the day with with tennis in a different way in a non-entertaining way, but in a, in a learning way, in a studying way. Um, and I'm not saying that they shouldn't have any fun with the sport, and I'm also not saying that they cannot use their phone for some fun things. But it cannot be that we stop practice, and one minute, one minute later they turn on the phones and they're in a complete different world, and nobody thinks of the things they just, that they just learned. And then us coaches are there in the next morning, and I have to explain again and again and again what I just taught them yesterday. I mean, this cannot happen. We need them to develop and to, to reflect on what they learned and um, to bring it on the court the next day, to visualize the night before maybe 10 perfect forehands in their head because we just worked on that and in and, and certain situations. Um, they need to help us that they learn faster. It doesn't happen from nothing. Right. Yeah, that's actually a, an educational principle. You know, we, we even adults, you, as you're studying something, uh, you don't go off and do something. You, if you sit and spend time just to kind of what we call ruminate or gestate or just think on something for a little time, then that actually helps it set in. If you and, you know, some people, yes. it takes them, you know, you could ask a question in a classroom, you know, and say, hey, uh, you know, uh, you know, what's the you know, X, Y, Z, this particular question. And for some people, it takes them a while just to even process the question. So people do process things at a different speed. But that's why I think it's yeah. important after matches or uh, even after practice, and I think this is a good point you're making, is it's great to be social. But right after that, actually, this might even be a good tool sometimes for some coaches out there to say, or players to say, okay, after practice, just spend a couple minutes and think, okay, what did I learn today? What what can I work on tomorrow? Okay, all right, off I go. And then at least you know they have that kind of filed away for the for the next day. So, mm. what uh, what do you think in terms of um, uh, doubles? Uh, you know, in terms of you obviously had some great wins and uh, um, the role of doubles in your development. And uh, how are your feelings about doubles in 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 uh, college? And it's changed probably even a little bit since you've uh, you know played. Because uh, 
when I was coaching at Irvine, we actually played two out of three, and then it went to the eight-game pro set, and then it went. Now it's down to six. Eight-game pro set, I played. Yeah, so it's you know then it, now it's I, six I games. Eight-game pro set before singles. Right. Yeah. And it's yeah. even shorter now with six games, no ad scoring. I mean, literally, I've seen matches go 10 minutes long when it's, you know, 6 0, you know, boom, you yeah. know, just real quick. But yeah. Yeah. Uh, what's your yeah. feeling about doubles as development as a player? Because it's a pretty hot topic for many people. Um, I think it's interesting to see the characters sometimes change. There is certain characters that couldn't care less for doubles. Um, these are usually uh, egocentric people that don't really care for other people they just want to look how fast they can get better and they don't really care for the others um, then you have other players um, that on the contrary really become very confident and very good suddenly and even dominate uh, players on the cross-court rallies that they would not dominate in the singles match so it is for sure a big change in in the mindset uh, not only tactically and not only stroke wise what's being needed but also, the mindset uh, changes completely. Um, I mean, I'm a big fan of doubles, and I love the game of doubles. Um, and I, I think it's a very good thing that the doubles ranking counts into the into the ranking in the juniors that makes them play more doubles. So I think that's a that's a very good thing. Um, and for sure, especially on the on the on the tournaments when when you don't have that many courts. So if you play on grass, if you play indoors. Um, I mean, you can't really get any practice courts, so it's it's a good thing to play some doubles matches and to keep working. Otherwise, you don't even get enough court time in these weeks. So um, I think doubles can teach you a lot. Uh, my return game improved a lot because I played more and more doubles. My reaction, obviously, has improved a lot more. Um, yeah. So uh, in all team sport events, doubles is very, very important. In tournaments... It's not that much. I mean, even even though I mean I played twice semi-final at a Grand Slam, and I had the honor of playing uh, Suzanne Longlen in Paris and uh, Arthur Ashe, uh, um, uh, Rod Laver in Melbourne. But you don't play in, in front of full crowds. I mean, you you play the double semi-final in front of a couple hundred people. So um, it just doesn't have that importance to the people. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I, I, and I, I think it's one of the things where in the juniors, I think it's just they have to find ways uh, to get, you know, kids playing more doubles. And uh, it's I think it's just a really important part of the game, um, you know, just well, for the overall it has development. a lot of strategy in it, a lot of strategy. And, yes. And it opens up their heads because they're, they're playing very, very one-dimensional. A lot of them, it's kick backhand and cross-court all day. Uh, so um, there's a lot of variations in there, and as I'm getting old, you know, I'm getting older and heavier and moving worse. So I'm playing <laughs> a lot of doubles with my kids. So and they're they're really um, surprised on how many different tactics that we can use and how many different serves and positionings. And uh, so for them, it's a great challenge to play me, but it's also very very useful for them because they see that there's so many different things I can just do with with the same setup, but I can, I can do so many different things. So yeah, I'm, I'm still loving it. Yeah, that's great. That's great. I, I, I tell people, uh, I say old school is good school. You know, it's the whole idea of, you know, for example, <laughs> even in singles, getting the net, the whole concept of even a chip and charge occasionally when Federer started doing it, people are like, wow, you know, well, look at people doing that for a long time. And it's, 
it's a great skill to have. Uh, what doesn't mean you're going to do it all the time, yeah. but uh, same thing in doubles, yeah. a little chip chip lob combo, or, you know, most people don't have a chip return. So there's a lot of different things you can do through it. So it just opens up and it gives you a little safety valve. If you screw up, you got your partner to kind of get your back the next point. So it gives you a little. Well, the, the worst thing, worst thing you can do in tennis is being predictable. So if, if I know where you're going, um, you lose a lot of your, your level, a lot of your class. So we need to have different options. Yeah. The um, going on for uh, as players are advancing, what would be some character? I'll ask one question as we're heading towards the end of our time here. I'll ask one question with two parts. What are things you might see that are telltale signs of success for somebody or mm-hmm. th- some warnings that, uh oh, they're these these characteristics are happening. This isn't good. You know, if they're going to be heading, if they want to be heading towards college or the pros, what are some things that you would pick up uh, that would be really good signs that they're going to do well, mm-hmm. um, or things mm-hmm. that are like, mm, this isn't so uh, good. You, you need to work on this, and it could be an attitude thing. It mm-hmm. could be parts of their game. What might be some uh, aspects there? It's mostly attitude. Mm-hmm. Um, I can tell you that, uh, for example, um, Donald Freitag, uh he was number one in the world last year. He won the U.S. Open in singles, and he won Wimbledon and the Australian Open in doubles. Um, and he's been with us for almost six years now. Last year, um, towards the end of the year, our coach, uh, Bastian Samantratip, he was sitting down with Jonas, and they went through all of his matches of, of the past year. And he asked him, how many of those matches didn't you give full effort? And he said, what do you mean? He said, well, let's look at all these matches. And it doesn't matter what it was, the wind, the umpire, the, uh, um, I don't know, my girlfriend, uh, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) Which match can you not find that you gave everything that you had that day? And he came up with 14 matches. And he was shocked. And he said, wow, I'm I'm losing two-thirds of all of my matches because I didn't try. And not trying is, is 90%, let's be honest, in professional sports. So, after he won US Open, my coach asked him, so Jonas, what's different now? And he said, I want to tell you zero in December. So, that's it right there. So, that doesn't mean that whoever tries this will end up number one in the world in the juniors. But this will teach you something and it's very difficult to fight every single match no matter what happens no matter how you feel no matter how what the circumstances are no matter if you like your opponent or not if it's old balls new balls if it's hot cold i mean coach nelson always told me there's a hundred reasons why you should lose today find one reason why you want to win and stick to it that's what he always taught me so i'm telling this <laughs> to my kids now and the one thing that um, to answer the second part of your question, it's very simple. It's learning. I need to see. You can make a lot of mistakes with me. You can screw it up. You can, I don't know, go to McDonald's every day. You can uh, fail. It's basically everything. But once we we talked about it, once we agree on something, I need to see progress. Mm-hmm. And if there's no progress, if I if I know that we are clear on something and you're still not doing it and you're failing again and again and there, then it's this I don't care thing that shows me that you're not going to go anywhere 
Yeah. So I need my kids to be learners. And like I said, they can make a lot of mistakes, but I need, if we agree that this is the right way, I need them to go on that path. And they can fail then for other reasons, but not that one again. Right. I think those are really two good points. And I just want to piggy tail uh, uh, feedback on that is when you say, you know, somebody said I didn't try. I think what's important is um, a lot of people think they try. It's that that not trying. What does that look like? Because it can look like something different for even the same player or a different player. Like, why didn't you try for that ball? Well, I, I couldn't get that. What do you mean you couldn't get it? How, how do you know? You didn't actually make an effort to get there. Or it could be, you know, uh, it's. You know, I have a little uh, system. Uh, I do a little video on this. It's on PRPR, positive physical response, relaxation, preparation, ritual between points. My point is this. If somebody uh-huh. goes, picks up a ball, goes to the baseline, turns around and serve, and they haven't even, A, gone through uh, the relaxation stage or they haven't even prepared or thought about what they're going to do for the next point, like you said, visualize your serve or whatever it is, you haven't tried. You haven't given everything uh-huh. you could during that time. And so those things... Um, you know, for a person could say, you know what, I normally am totally focused on every single point. I didn't try for one game and I got broken and that cost me a set. Now I got a third set I got to deal with. So that not trying, you know, I've even said in practice sometimes, let's go, guys or girls, let's go five minutes with 100% focus to see if you can actually go the entire time without thinking about anything else besides the ball, the sound, the spin, the you know where it is, can you hit it on the rise, uh, without looking over to the side to see what somebody else is doing. It's hard, you know, and so to get them to be able to focus those things. So I think that's a really good point. You know, looking back on matches. Well, for and, and, me, it's, yeah. For me, it's, for me, it's important that we agree on something. So if I say you didn't try and the person says I did, and we have a difference. In looking at it, mm-hmm. that's very simple. Let's film the next match. Yeah. And I tell you, you didn't try seven points. And the others, like I said, no, I didn't. And then let's have a look at it. But you just have to, again, you have to take the time to sit down with the player and you have to spend time with him. You have to talk to him. Yeah. And then you can, then you have a situation where you say, look, you didn't take any time. You didn't even look at the ball and the ball's coming and you don't care. And then he says, yeah, but um, blah, blah, blah. But at the <laughs> end of this, at the end of this, you will agree, okay, this is what we want, and this is what we don't want. Right. And the player will say, okay, yes, okay, I didn't feel it like this. And we all know, I mean, you've played enough matches on the court, feels so different than sitting outside and analyzing. It's right. a complete different thing. We have a low pulse. We've seen millions of matches. And when you're on the court, your pulse is high. You go crazy easily. Um, so... Uh, that's why I'm saying you just have to agree on it. And yeah. the communication there is, again, important. So if we agree on that, that's what we don't want, then that's what we don't want. And I'm not somebody that says you can never throw your racket. Right. You know, if yeah. you go crazy, you can go crazy. But after that, I want to see the competitor come out and and, and fletch the teeth, and, and, and then I want to see a fighter. I don't want to hear somebody whining and complaining and crying for every single point and commentating everything. If I, if I miss seven easy, easy shots in a row, I probably break my racket, take the next one out, and fight like hell uh, from then on. And I haven't broken a racket in a long time, so I'm not I'm not saying that we should all break rackets. But <laughs> um, and then, uh, some, yeah. some uh, a, a breakout like a, a something can also be a positive thing. But I, I don't want to hear this. Oh, I can't do this. 
why is uh, I'm missing again? I can't do this. That's what I don't want. Right. I want somebody to go maybe crazy, but I want to like Andy Murray. You know, he he goes nuts on the court, but he will fight the next point. Right. And not like Nick Kyrgios, who who doesn't care. <laughs> right. Well. Um... As our time comes to a close, I want to find out, and I ask every guest this, and I would like, uh, and I don't give anybody, um, it's because I know you're going to come up with them. It's, uh, I, I don't tell people ahead of time. But uh, what are your top five characteristics of a champion? And it do, I don't, by champion, I don't mean, you know, they've won a, won a grand slam, but of a person of character, of, of, of their, what they do on court, uh, you know, whether it is the results or their personality, whatever. What are the top five characteristics, what you would say, you know, that, what this girl, this guy is a champion, and these are the five characteristics. What would those be? Mm-hmm. Uh, number one is grit. Um, getting back up uh, after you've been knocked down like Rocky Balboa has a million times, I would say. Then it's perseverance going for your goal constantly, never letting down there. Um, it is passion, because without the passion for the sport, you would lose all of that and you wouldn't find any any reason why to keep going. Um, it is support, because without people that support you, you, you can't do it, um, even though you can also have enemies out there, but you need the people um, or some few important people that are behind you. And the, the last thing that you need is uh, competitiveness. You have to have that in you that you want to win at all times, or you can also swap it that you don't want to lose. Uh, so, um, yeah, that's what I would take. Yeah, that's great. I, and I think in those, a couple of those things you mentioned before is the attitude and then that desire to learn. If you, if you're, if you don't have that desire to learn, cause I think those fit into what you're talking about here, uh, as well. So that's, mm-hmm. that's some great stuff. Well, Alex, um, it's been, it's been awesome talking with you and, uh, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Um, just some great Thanks, insights. Steve. Thanks for inviting me. No, it's it's awesome. And uh, uh, before you go, I just uh, folks out there, if you've been uh, you've been listening to the Coach Steve Clark PhD show with uh, current director of Waske uh, Tennis University in in Germany, uh, he's the coach of many top ATP and WTA players as well as uh, you know top juniors, and um, you know an NCAA standout at uh, San Diego State, and you can visit on, him on his website at I think this is correct. It's tennis-university.com. Is that correct, Alex? Yes. yes. Um, and when I post this, folks, uh, there'll be information on on that uh, that section of my website. Just go to my podcast, or you can go to the blog section and and search for it as well. I embed uh, the podcast in that as well. Uh, so be sure to like, share the podcast on my website with your friends at CoachSteveClarkPhD.com, and there you'll find blogs, podcast resources, video discussion, and more. Um, and, and I'd also like to thank um, the Collins Company, um, located in Southern Cal. They do a great job in terms of their court products, and then uh, Aero Concrete and Asphalt Specialties of Spokane. They do an amazing job with their surfacing, etc. And um, so I welcome your comments and questions, and you can reach me at Steve at CoachSteveClarkPhD.com. So, Alex, really appreciate it. And um, as I say, everybody, um, at the end of our shows is, uh, because Mike and Bob Bryan do the music here, and it's uh, to a tune they do called uh, Let It Rip. And so that's what I say is Let It Rip. Let It Rip.